I've been only able to kill one deer in my life without a vehicle. <laughs> For those of you who've missed, I've hit two deer in the last three to four weeks with vehicles. But the one time I was able to get one without a vehicle was when I was a senior in college. I may have shared this story before, but I do apologize if the details are familiar to you. But uh, in my hometown, I had the opportunity during winter break to go back and go hunting. And was getting the last couple days of, of hunting season for archery. And so I was getting to the end of the day, and I was making my way back towards my vehicle. And uh, I, as I was walking down, I, I decided to go up a ravine and onto a, a hill, plateau, that would lead me eventually to another trail that would go down to the parking lot where my vehicle was. Well, as I go walk up this ravine, and I can, I can describe it to you, it, it, it went up pretty much up straight, and then it kind of leveled out, and there were two main trails that you could take. You could take one on the left, one on the right, and in the middle was this kind of dense wooded area. So I decided to take the one on the right, because that was, just, that was the quickest way, and I thought, well, I'll just look and then and head home. Well, as I'm walking along, all of a sudden I see this doe that's on my left in the wooded area. So there's this one trail on the left in the wooded area. She is walking from the wooded area to that second trail. And so I decided to walk and just follow by that trail that I was on and follow to see if I could get a shot. So I followed her, and she's just kind of gingerly walking around. You know, as deer do, they look around every once in a while. And all of a sudden, as I'm walking along, I saw a movement off to my right, to the other wooded area that eventually encompasses much of, of, of the park where I was hunting. And I saw another doe who hadn't noticed me. And she was walking down towards this uh, deep incline that would level out to the main area of the park, entrance to the park, and she hadn't noticed me. So I figured I'd leave the one out going off to the left. I'd leave her alone and follow this one. And sure enough, as I walked along, she still hadn't noticed me, still hadn't noticed me. And then she stopped behind a tree, and you could see her back end sticking out. And so I thought, okay, this is my time, this is my moment. So I took my bow, and I shot, and I hit her. Because I knew I hit her because she leaped about four or five feet in the air because the arrow got her right below her gut. And I mean, obviously, if you've ever done archery or even done any regular type of hunting, once you hit something, your heart rate goes up, you get a little excited, and you have to calm yourself down because you've got to wait a few minutes to go look for the deer. And that was my case. I was so excited, but I just had to calm down and wait. Eventually, I went back, found out where I hit her, and she went only 30, 40 yards, not even, before she collapsed, and, and that was my only deer that I got. So it was an exciting time for me to finally get one, and then it took, what, 14, 13, 14 years to get two more and just use another method to do so. Um, but just like I had to take aim to kill that deer all those many years ago, so we in our walk of faith have to get our aim right. We have to get our aim right. So in this passage this morning, I want us to see that we need to aim for maturity in our walk of faith. We need to aim for maturity in our walk of faith. You say, Pastor, well, how, how does this passage Tell me how to aim for maturity in my walk of faith. 
I would like to give you three actions that this passage tells us in our aim to be mature in our walk of faith. The first one comes from verses 1 and 2, and basically this is you push forward to maturity. You push forward to maturity. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, the author says. And there's several key movements, if you will, in this pushing forward to maturity. The first one is is that it requires moving on from basic truths. Notice he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. The word leaving here means to to go away and as the implication of of separating or departing from. It points back to chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. That's the idea of elementary principles, the, the basic components. Now, the word elementary means to, to, be a, to have a basis for further study or understanding. It's not abandoning the basic teachings of Christianity, as one author put it, but rather the necessity of recognizing the foundational character of these teachings and thus the impropriety or the unnecessariness of going over the same ground. An illustration I would use to, to, to point this out is that the foundational truths you learned in elementary school impacted your high school learning and beyond, didn't it? One plus one is two impacted how you learned geometry in high school. Uh, learning verbs and nouns and how to identify them impacted how you diagram sentences in high school and learn complex paragraphs and how to write a argument or write a descriptive paper. So your foundational truths in school impacted your learning beyond elementary school, didn't it? That's what the author is referring to. The elementary teachings of the truth about Jesus and the faith are foundational. They are they're necessary for our growth. But... We need to leave them behind. Because our goal is not to go back and look at them, but to continue to grow more and more. So our aim in understanding truth must be always to looking to know more and not be satisfied with what knowledge we have. It should always be looking to grow and to be progressing, to be maturing, and not just be satisfied with the basics that we already have. Notice also with me that that pushing forward to maturity, this action step we need to take, requires pressing on to deeper truth. Let's go on to perfection. The word go on means to, to follow a certain course in direction or conduct. And the, the grammar there points to, to the author wants this to be a, a fulfilled desire of his, that, that, that we all would press forward. So he's including himself in this description. Some of the commentators put a command form behind this word. I understand why they do it. I would rather see this verb as being just more of an encouragement. Okay? He's encouraging maturity. He's encouraging pushing forward to deeper truth. But he uses the word perfection. Right? And some of you might read that. Some of you may have a different translation. But the word perfection means to be mature or complete. 
This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Colossians 3.14, where Paul writes, And above all, th- all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so Paul's writing about you know, putting, bringing the, the everything together, and love is binding everything together so that the perfect harmony that we seek is, is, is bound up in love. But here, the author of Hebrews is describing perfection not in a complete, harmonious, you know, everything's right state, but maturity, completeness, wholeness. Let's go on to maturity or perfection. So, so uh, I, I, would, I would see that word being more of emphasizing the, being mature in the faith, being more complete in the faith. And that's our goal, isn't it? He says, let us go on to perfection. The, 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 the phrase to perfection points to the goal of going on. In Scripture, we always see that, that pressing on or pushing forward always has a goal to it, right, in the Christian life. We'll look at this. Well, we, we, you, your mind probably goes to Philippians 3.14, where Paul says, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That was his goal as he pressed on. And so here for us, pressing on, pursuing something here has a goal in mind and that is maturity. So when people tell you to press on in your life or press on in your faith, it's not just a general abstract statement that they're making. They, they want you to grow in their faith. They're encouraging to keep you to keep going. Notice also, too, that deeper truth does not rehash what has already been accomplished. I will again draw upon our school illustration. And I'll use, <laughs> I'll use a subject that was not my best. I did not like English in high school. Okay, I'm sorry if you're any English majors here. I apologize deeply. I hated English. Just, and, and what made it worse is my mom was an English teacher. Okay? And so that was just continually harped on in, in school. But in high school English, if you can think back that far for some of you, you did not go over your ABCs again, did you? You didn't. The first day in class, your teacher didn't say, okay, let's all repeat them, A, B, no, you didn't do that. Why? Because you already knew that. And it spent several years formulating that foundation through elementary school, right? Now you were learning about, okay, how does this word function? How to write an effective argumentative paper? How to read a book and, and dissect the argument? That, that's what high school English was. So you're building off the foundation of what you learned in elementary school, but you were not rehashing it. It was already assumed that you knew the basics. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he is encouraging his readers to not go back to what they already knew. That's not the point of maturity. Maturity is not go back and rehash what we already knew. It doesn't lay again. The, word, the phrase laying again means to, to lay something down with the implication of permanence. It's already been done. You've already laid down the foundation in your faith. So the permanent foundation of what? He says not laying again the foundation of repentance. That has already been laid. The foundation here means the, the basis for something taking place and, and, or, or coming into being. 
And so that foundation is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. It, it refers to the salvation experience. So the author is saying, going into deeper truth does not go back and relearn all that stuff. You know that stuff. Because you did it. You repented from dead works. You believed the truth of God's Word. And you were saved coming into faith towards God. You don't need to go back and relearn that. That's something you already know. Yes, it's good to be reminded of the truth and, and to bring that to remembrance as we celebrated this morning. But don't live there. Don't go back and rehash re, uh, all of those things. Going deeper into truth, notice lastly, this last kind of component. Going deeper into truth enables in-depth understanding of its practices and teaches, teachings. So not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, now, talk about, if you can insert in verse 2, now, that, that would make it a little bit more clear, because uh, not laying again, and, and at the end there, uh, faith toward God, it's a whole separate clause in and of itself. Emphasis there. But now, now what? Of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, he mentions several different things here that you can see, different doctrines, different teachings of the church, of the Bible. But it's not designed to be an exhaustive list, right? It's, just, it's designed to show that there are some truths out there that you Jewish Christians can understand and apply. Well, what does it mean? How does, the, how does baptism affect my life? And, and what, what does the laying on of hands look like? What about the resurrection of the dead? How does that impact my life now? And, and eternal judgment, how is that going to factor into my life as a believer all these truths are worthy of being studied in depth and understood better. And in fact, what the author is doing here is he's pointing to the necessity of this study because that is how faith is strengthened. Right? When you go deeper in depth into the Word of God in a particular topic, whether it be baptism, whether it be the church, uh, when I had my ordination council the, a few weeks ago, you know, kind of went in depth on each doctrine and, and worked through them. When you study in depth in God's Word, I hope this is true for all of us, don't you find your faith strengthened when you come out on the other side? You're, you're fully convinced about what God says about salvation, what God says about um, being a holy people. That after you've studied it, you've learned it, and are continuing to learn it, you come out with your faith strengthened. See, that's what going deeper into truth does. It enables us to learn more about what the Bible says to practice and to teach. And so that leads me to ask this question by way of application this morning. Are you going deeper into understanding the truth, or are you satisfied to remain where you are? Now, it's good to talk about salvation. The author is not denying that. It's good to talk about your salvation experience, what God saved you from. That's, that's part of going in depth into truth. But what he's encouraging us to do is to go on from that and learn more and more about God and what he has done and what we're called to do. You see, brothers and sisters, too many Christians today are just satisfied to sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, learn a little bit about God, and then go home and be done with it. I hope that's not you this morning. 
I hope you haven't come just to hear a good message and then leave going home feeling good about yourself. That's, that's, that's not my intent. That's not God's intent. God's intent is for us to come and to learn and to grow in our faith. And how do you grow your faith? You go deeper into the truth. Now, that doesn't mean you go to Bible college or seminary. I know a few of us in this room have done that. But that makes, makes it all more important to make the effort to do so. Some Christians are just satisfied to sit where they're at and just not make any effort to understand God more, to know God more. And others have, have made that the goal in their lives to understand and know God more. That is the goal. Maturity is the goal. Are you pressing toward that goal or just kind of sitting back and saying, eh, I'll do it when I feel like it. Or it's not for me. The Bible always encourages the author of Hebrews, especially here, to be mature in our faith. Are you pressing toward that goal? Are you desiring to know more about your Savior, more about your God, more about what He has done for you, more about what God calls you to do? That's what God honors. That's what God wants. He doesn't want a Christian who is just satisfied to know that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Good truth, great truth. But there's so much more to it than that. It kind of reminds me, when we went through Ephesians, I don't know about you, but didn't you come out at the end of our study in Ephesians just blown away by what God has done for us? I did. And I was the one preaching the messages. I mean, just what God has done for us in Christ is so amazing. That's part of going deeper into truth and learning more about God. So are you going deeper or are you remaining satisfied where you're at? Second action that this passage challenges us to do in our pressing towards maturity is to depend upon God for maturity. Verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Just notice a couple things about this. It's kind of just a, you would think this is it's kind of more of a tack-on to the end of this section, but it's not really. It's got a purpose to it. It shows that maturity, number one, is a commitment to make. And this we will do. The word this points out back to that idea of, of going on to perfection. And this, the, the maturity, this we will do. This is the goal that we have in mind. And the future tense of the word do shows a commitment to that action. And the grammar of the word points to all of us being involved in the process. So the author is encouraging his believers, to, the, the, the readers, to, to make a commitment to maturity. Let's do this. We will do this. But it's not possible without God. If God permits. Again, drawing upon our school illustration if you can think about back to your middle school and high school years, you were not the one who decided if you were able to go to the next grade, were you? It was your teacher and more or less your principal who looked at your grades and decided, yes, this is passing, they can go on. You couldn't walk into your principal's office one day and say, hey, I got these grades, uh, I'll see you in my sophomore year. Or junior year, whatever it might be. I'll, I'll see you in my senior year. I'm excited to do it. No, you had to wait for the report card from your teacher as well as 
other input from the principal to say, hey, yes, David Fish has done enough work, done sufficient work to graduate from ninth grade to 10th grade. And most oftentimes that was my dad who was the principal, so I had to go talk to him. <laughs> but you couldn't make that decision, could you? It was dependent upon the decision of the teacher and the principal. Well, the same way, our maturity in the faith is based upon God. It's not possible without Him. The word permit here means to allow to do something. And again, the grammar here points to a wish or desire to be fulfilled. And so what the author is doing here is he's showing that without God's permission, maturity is not possible. An example of this idea of God granting permission is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. Let me read that to you. Paul says, For I do not wish to see you now, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. That's the idea of, of, of depending upon God for the um, permission, in Paul's case, uh, to see the Corinthian believers. And here, our maturity, our growing in the faith, is dependent upon God's permission. It is of God's grace that we are saved, and it is by God's gracious permission that we grow in our faith. It's all dependent upon Him and not us. Do you realize that this morning? Your, your maturity in your faith, your growth in the faith, is up to God and not you? And, and shouldn't that prompt us to be more dependent upon Him for that? Because you and I can't grow ourselves, can we? I mean, we, we can sit and read the Bible all we can and, and, and try to understand it and study it, but the growth depends upon God. It kind of reminds me of what, and this is more or less an illustration, but it kind of reminds me of what Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's all dependent upon Him. Your maturity, your growth in the faith is dependent upon God. So that leads me to ask this question by way of application. Are you depending upon God for your spiritual growth? Or are you trying to do it yourself? Many believers today may take the path of, okay, I've got to read this book, I've got to follow this guy on Twitter or Facebook, and if I do all these things, checklist, I'll grow. And while those things may have value, the teachings of someone else and impact through God's Word may have value. Learning about certain truths of the Bible may have value. Your ultimate growth is dependent upon Him. You know, God has taken me through an incredible journey these past four years. Through hills and valleys, through struggles and, and victories, through hardship. Enjoy. And the reason that happened was because God allowed it to happen. And I'm not the person I was four years ago. And why is that? It's not because of anything I did. <laughs> that first year, I would have, okay, God, I'm done. No, it's, it was possibly made possible because God allowed it to happen in my life. And so you, in your walk of faith, wherever you're at, maybe you're at the beginning, maybe you're in the middle, some of you are getting toward the end. 
Are you depending upon God to grow in your faith? And and maybe a sub-application of this would be, are you committed to growing in your faith? This we will do. He's making the commitment for the believers. He's wanting, uh, the author is, to bring everybody alongside to join this together. And are you committed to growing in your faith? Again, it does not matter what age you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It does not matter how long you've been a member of this church. We all need to grow in our faith, don't we? We all need to go deeper into the truth and learn more about God and depend upon Him more. And are you committed to making that step of growing in the faith to be more mature? So how do we, how do we aim for maturity? We press on toward maturity. We push forward. We depend upon God for maturity. And then lastly, we heed the warning that comes with maturity. Now, admittedly, verses 4 through 8 have been a great controversy in the history of biblical interpretation. Because on the outset, it would seem that verses 4 through 8 describe a situation where someone, a believer, may lose their salvation. So there's been much written about this. But what I would attempt to do this morning as I work through this passage, these few verses, this last half of this, this section this morning, is to describe to you how I believe the passage works out and just kind of walk you through it. These few verses. Number one, this warning is for believers. I would recommend a commentary to you, the one that I kind of referenced uh, there was others that I read and just kind of going over in preparation for you. Uh, David Allen in the New American Commentary series. He really does a good job of going in depth on t- in, this p- in this section, just kind of describing it. He looks at the different views that are held on this issue of, of uh, possibly losing salvation and brings about a, a good conclusion. So I would recommend that to you if you want to do any further study. But I would say this is warnings for, for believers because of, of several reasons. Number one, context. What are we dealing with here? We, we mentioned this all the way, way back at the beginning of our study in Hebrews. This book is written to believers who are struggling in their faith, Jewish Christians, and others as well. So, so based upon the context, he's writing to believers. This warning is for them. Notice also that the word enlightened means to make known in reference to the inner life or, trans, or transcendent matters and thus enlighten. And it's used to describe the word those. So it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. Enlightened, who are enlightened, those. And the word enlightened here refers to the salvation process whereby an unbeliever becomes enlightened because of the work of God through his spirit so that he or she sees their condition before God and repents. That's why, I say, that's why I say this is about believers. This is not about unbelievers. This is about believers. Third reason I would give you that this is about re, uh, believers is because of the word tasted. The word tasted here means to partake of. And we've already seen it in chapter 2, verse 9, where it says that the Son 
We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste. That's the same word there, death, for everyone. So it refers to taste, and what is he, what is he tasting? We've tasted the heavenly gift. The word heavenly gift here means salvation. We can go back to John chapter 4, verse 20, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. You can look up those verses to see how that, that phraseology is, refers to salvation. So again, it refers to believers. A fourth reason that I would give you that this passage refers to believers is the word partakers. It means participating or sharing in and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So sharing in the Holy Spirit. So using those words together, it refers to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer through the indwelling of the Spirit, which is only possible for those who believe, right? And fifth reason I would give you that this is about believers is the phrase, the word, to come. I've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. This points to the future. The good word of God refers to the content of God's revelation made known to the prophets, the scriptures, and the creation. The powers to come points to the future plan of God, eschatological plan of God. And this is something only believers are familiar with. The unbeliever just has no clue of God's future plan, right? It just, it's foreign to them. But for the believer, it is not. So that, that's, that's why I say it's for believers. Now let me keep describing it for you, and, and I hope it makes sense. Secondly, the warning has identifying marks with it. For it's impossible. The word, the word impossible, and I've... Uh, well, actually, we'll get to this in a minute. Um... For those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. The word fall away is where we get our word apostatize from. It means to fail to follow through on a commitment. Fall away, commit apostasy. Uh, got that slide coming up. Do I have this versus slide coming up, Cindy? In the back? Yeah. Um, is that before this one or after? Okay. All right. And that's the next one, right? Yes. Okay. I kind of jumped. Uh, well, let me stop right here. Um, what I did was I went through um, different, chose a couple versions just to kind of show you how it's described. I mean, I, obviously, I'm using the New King James. But this is how the ESV puts it. For it is impossible in the case of those who kind of delineates that. It puts a comma right after is impossible. And then you go down here to the comma, then have fallen away to restore them. So the idea that the, the translation bringing out, and remember, meaning is primary, translation is secondary. It's emphasizing was impossible to restore them again to repentance. Um, let's go forward one. All right, this is the ASV, uh, 1901 edition. For us touching those things, I like this one a little bit because it just delineates it a little bit more better. For us touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift or made partakers of the Holy Spirit, so we get all these lists here, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. So it's using, it's taking all those descriptions, putting them at the first part of the verse, and then, the, and then putting that phrase, it is impossible to renew them again, to show that's the main emphasis. One more. Uh, the New American Standard. Kind of the same deal, maybe just a little bit of a tweak. 
Same thing it describes for the case of those, kind of, kind of words are a little different. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So those descriptions are used to describe those, and then it describes, okay, what, what does that look like? What happens? They apostatize. They fall away. They fail to, the word fall, uh, fall away means to fail to follow through on a commitment. And the New King James has that word if there. You can see it in New King James. I think King James has that as well. I, I think the better description is when they fall away. It's describing a potential situation. So rather than if, um, it's better to use either when they fall away or um, not if, since. You know, it could be another term. But that, that word if is not, it's not really there, so it's not really a good way of clearing it up. Rather, it's, it's, it's better to use that word when. So when they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. By which, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So what is he saying? He's saying in, in their apostasy, they treat the sacrifice of Christ as meaningless and dishonor him. That word crucify again means to, to go through the whole crucifixion process one more time. And by doing so, they put him to open shame. It means to disgrace someone publicly, expose or make an example of. So falling away from the, from the faith, remember this is for believers, falling away from the faith does not mean that they lose their salvation, but it results in them acting like an unbeliever, which brings shame to the name of Christ. Old Testament illustration I would use for you is 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me read it for you. We've been studying the life of David in our Sunday school time, ABF. Listen to what Nathan says about David's sin. Verse 14 of chapter 12. However, now let me read verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So because of David's sin, God's name was dragged through the mud. It was blasphemed by those who were opposed to him. And by the same token, when we fall away, when there are those who are fall away from the faith, they no longer attend church. They are no longer in God's Word. They, sh- they show signs of being an unbeliever. They bring shame upon the name of Christ. And the result for them has some consequences. That's why he says it is impossible. The word impossible here means incapable of happening or being done. Impossible to what? To renew them again to repentance. The word renew here means to restore. And repentance refers to turning around. So the issue here is not salvation. Because if it was, it would say to renew, them, to renew them again to salvation, right? It would use that term. But it says to renew them again to repentance. Can, is there repentance outside of salvation? Yeah. Shake your head, yes. Because we all, when we're confronted by our sin, what, what, what are we supposed to do? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, Right? So the issue is about repentance, which is turning from sin and turning back to God, which a believer can do. So when one falls away from the faith, and and again, this is hard to hear, but when a believer falls away from the faith, they're actively engaged in sin, there's no signs uh, uh, 
of repentance in, in our life, it is impossible to grant them repentance from that form of apostasy because God does not permit it. Now, is that hard to hear? Yeah, it is. But again, it would point you to an example of this. And I'm thankful that he is God and I am not. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. Let me read verse 16. Therefore, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau tried to repent, but God did not permit him to do it. There is the possibility that a believer can fall away from the faith, get so wrapped up in his or his sin, be so acting like an unbeliever that God does not grant him or her repentance from that sin. Does that mean they lose their salvation? No. Scripture teaches, Jesus says, uh, my, my Father gives them unto me and no one shall take them out of my Father's hand. That's pretty, pretty convincing. But yet the warning here shows that if if a believer continues in the pattern of sin, refuses to repent, their repentance will not be granted to them. And so he uses an illustration to conclude this warning, and I think this will help. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Was he's using the earth as an illustration. The earth has rain all the time, right? We had rain the other day. And for those who have tilled the earth and, and worked it to produce growth, there, there's blessing. God blesses that. There's going to be success. They put in the work. They've, they've made sure that um, it bears herbs because it's been cultivated. That's the idea of the word worked, cultivated. God blesses that. It receives that blessing. It receives that um, participation in the fruits. But, if it bears thorns and briars, is rejected. So those who have not prepared it, who have not cultivated, who have not worked the ground, the result will be no fruit, only thorns and thistles and unfruitfulness. And the result of those effects of not being tilled and having wrong, or weeds and stuff growing from it, is that it's going to be burned. So those who do not mature, who, those who do not work the ground of their faith, if you will, and fall away from that faith will be judged by God. So what does this illustration do? It points to what, it points, it asks a question, and it points to reality. The, the idea is, what will you do with God in your life? Will you work the ground? Will you mature in your faith? or you would just let it sit and increase the possibility of falling away. It kind of goes back to the illustration of the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8, you remember that story? The, thorn, the, 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 work, the ground that's worked, that receives the word, it grows, it, it produces. If it falls on stony ground, it doesn't produce. If it falls among thistles, it chokes out the word. If you mature and let God work, it will result in growth in your faith. If you fall away from the faith, disobeying God in the process, you will experience His judgment. 
It's hard to hear, isn't it? That there could possibly be a time where you or I, if we do not repent, if we do not continually to be, to be mature, we fall away from the faith, that God will not grant us repentance. Will we lose our salvation? No. But we will incur His judgment. So that leads me, after probably complicated things for you massively, that leads me to ask you this question. Are you progressing towards maturity or apostasy? Are you moving towards being mature in your faith, growing in your faith, or are you moving away from the faith to the point that God may not grant you repentance? Yes, you're still, you would be, still be saved, but you would be in a position where you would incur His judgment rather than His blessing. So are you progressing? Are you growing in your faith, brother, sister in Christ? Or are you progressing towards leaving the faith? Again, it's not something I want to happen for any of you. But the warning is real. It's in God's Word. If we do not progress and grow in our faith, and again, it's not always big leaps and bounds. Sometimes it's just one foot in front of the other. Right? But as we mature in our faith, are we working on it so that when trial and temptation comes, we do not fall away? We're not wrapped up in a particular sin in this world and we're letting it dominate our thinking. We're moving towards repentance and faith. Are you progressing towards faith? Or are you progressing towards apostasy? If you want to kill a deer, you first must aim at it, even if your weapon is a vehicle. This passage this morning has showed us that in our walk of faith, we have something to aim for, and that's maturity. How do we do that? We push forward to maturity. That's our goal. We depend upon God for maturity. Can't do it without Him. And we heed the warning that comes with maturity. If we don't work on our faith, we don't need to mature in our faith. There's the possibility that Sin could so wrap our lives and cause us to fall away from the faith that God may not grant us repentance. So as you and I continue our walk of faith this week, let's press on to maturity and not be satisfied with anything less as the goal.